welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 75, Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology. To talk about environmental disasters and chemically related events of the 1970s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Though it's only been four episodes since our last environmental chemistry episode, we really have to keep bringing up this topic. The 1970s was when chemistry began to equal toxic environmental problems in the public mind, and in this episode, we shall see why. By 1970, America celebrated its first Earth Day and the United States Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, was set up in 1971. One of the most famous of all children's books concerning the environment, Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, appeared in 1971, and college students protested the use of Dow Chemicals war product, Napalm, in that year, and here we take up the banner for environmental chemistry again. We mentioned DDT and Rachel Carson's work a decade earlier, and finally in 1972, the new EPA banned the use of DDT. The EPA's website currently notes that DDT is, quote, known to be very persistent in the environment, will accumulate in fatty tissues, and can travel long distances in the upper atmosphere, unquote. But there's more to talk about in the 1970s. In 1955, the U.S. Forest Service set aside the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest, which is part of the White Mountain National Forest in the northeastern USA, as a specifically scientific area for research into forest management, ecology, and hydrology. One surprising result was a discovery in 1963 that rainwater fell with a pH around 4, which is much lower than natural rainwater should be. Rain should have a pH around 5.6 or so. Neutral pH is 7. The difference between clean rain and neutral is dissolved atmospheric carbon dioxide in the water, which makes carbonic acid, so rainwater is slightly acidic. But why was rain in the Hubbard Brook area so acidic compared with normal? A careful study starting in 1969 by three professors, Gene Likens, Herbert Bormann, and Noy Johnson, published in 1972, showed that this so-called acid rain contained nitric and sulfuric acid. Both nitric and sulfuric acids derive from nitrogen oxides and sulfur oxides, that is, smog and industrial output. But Hubbard Brook is over a 100 kilometers from the closest possible industrial output of these gases. This was the first publication about acid rain in North America. What's going on? 
Let's also remember that the term acid rain was invented over a hundred years earlier by Scottish scientist Robert Angus Smith. By 1974, another paper with a detailed analysis of the rain showed that 65% of the acid in rain was sulfuric acid, 30% was nitric acid, there was a bit of hydrochloric acid, and some other organic acids in tiny amounts. Comparing the overall acidity in rain with nitrates revealed that nitrates seem to be related. Nitrates are related to fossil fuels and maybe with nitrogen containing fertilizers. Snow itself, quite common in that area, at first 20% more acid than even the rain, and this extra acidity harms fish and invertebrates in the ponds and rivers where meltwater flows. These two papers made quite a splash in the media. You might say it was the first global environmental chemistry problem that was recognized, and if you lived through the 1970s, it was everywhere, with especially reports of fish kills. But another problem from acid rain affected purely human activities, that of stone buildings and monuments. The acidic vapor reacts with calcite in structural materials like marble and limestone. So, ancient through modern architectural marvels, whether cathedrals and their gargoyles, graves with their inscriptions, or just plain stone blocks, all get eroded away. If you are a genealogist, you know that marble and limestone grave markers often are very heavily weathered. Sometimes to the point of the inscriptions completely obliterated. Often you can see a black, crusty material on these calcite-related substances, which is the product of water, sulfuric acid, and calcite. The black stuff is mostly gypsum, which sits on areas that rain cannot wash away. Acid rain was not just recognized in the USA. Simultaneously in Europe, a Swedish scientist, Svante Oden, published an article in 1967 in the newspaper Dagens Nyheter on an insidious chemical warfare among the nations of Europe, also talking about low pH in rain and surface waters. Then he published an ecological committee report in 1968 on the problem. And gradually, the Swedish government began to take notice. By 1972, case studies in Europe were underway, and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development published its report in 1977 that quote, sulfur compounds do travel long distances in the atmosphere, and the air quality in any European country is measurably affected. By emissions from other European countries, unquote. So acid rain was finally recognized as a world problem, a transnational problem, for food, for ecology, for history, for art. Essentially, acid rain affected everyone in every way. It even had a political effect, for it allowed some contacts between first world. And countries behind the Iron Curtain, the United Nations got involved with its United Nations Economic Commission for Europe (UNECE). In 1971, the UNECE 
created a Committee on Environmental Policy. The committee eventually drew up a treaty called Convention on Long-Range Transboundary Air Pollution in 1979, and it came into effect in 1983, and includes provisions on acid rain. European emissions of sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, and ammonia gas peaked in 1980, and have dropped 80% since then to roughly 1930s levels. Maps of European acid rain from 1990 show dangerous levels blanketing the continent from Belgium to Poland. After 20 years of controls in 2010, the dangerous areas are now limited to areas along the Belgian-Dutch border, southern Poland, and Austria. Similar reductions in sulfur dioxide have been observed in North America after regulations on industrial emissions. Plus, catalytic converters on cars began to have an effect. The average amount of atmospheric sulfur dioxide in New York City was nearly 200 parts per billion in 1964, one tenth of that in 1980, and around five parts per billion in 2010. Let's consider another problem in environmental chemistry from the 1970s. Recall Thomas Midgley's invention of freon and similar chlorofluorocarbon compounds as safe, non-toxic refrigerants in the 1920s. A half century later, these compounds were used worldwide as the active ingredient in refrigerators, freezers, and air conditioning units. If the units ever leaked, Those molecules of freon escaped into the atmosphere. Also, we should know that in the stratosphere is an allotrope of oxygen, that is, a molecule of oxygen, but with a different number of oxygen atoms, O3, called ozone. While ozone is a dangerous, toxic compound at ground level, in the stratosphere at about 15 to 35 kilometers up. Where life doesn't exist, it forms a layer that absorbs most of the harmful ultraviolet radiation which the sun emits. Ozone is still very diffuse there; it's only 10 parts per million, but at ground level, its concentration is 30 times less. Ultraviolet light carries more energy than visible light, and therefore it is photochemically active. It can break bonds in organic compounds. Including biological molecules like DNA. Ultraviolet light is what causes sunburns, skin cancer, and, over the long term, cataracts in the eyes. And it's not just people. Marine life gets hurt by extra ultraviolet light, and extra ultraviolet light could cause the food chain to collapse. Agricultural crops are harmed by extra ultraviolet. So. The ozone layer protects us from a lot worse harm by absorbing around 98% of the damaging ultraviolet. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. 
Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Sherwood Rowland, a California chemist, was at a talk by English scientist James Lovelock in 1972 and heard about Lovelock's results in measuring the amounts of trace gases. Lovelock chose to measure chlorofluorocarbons, specifically CFC11, and the results indicated that all molecules of CFC11 that were ever made in the past half century were still there. Rowland considered this idea and wondered about ultraviolet radiation and if it would photochemically break down chlorofluorocarbons. The following year, a young Mexican postdoctoral researcher named Mario Molina was starting out at Rowland's laboratory and decided to examine a question about these inert compounds, chlorofluorocarbons, that were beginning to accumulate in our atmosphere. What chemistry might occur in the atmosphere to affect these freon and freon-like molecules? Molina discovered that the light from the sun breaks down chlorofluorocarbons. The reaction products include individual chlorine atoms and fluorocarbon molecules, which are highly reactive radicals. They both have unpaired electrons. These chlorine atoms immediately grab onto a nearby ozone molecule and destroy it by creating a regular oxygen molecule plus an oxyradical. The oxyradical grabs onto an occasional free oxygen atom, making an oxygen molecule plus another radical. Or the oxyradical can grab onto another ozone molecule, making two oxygen molecules plus a free radical. This is a regeneration cycle in which a freon molecule destroys more ozone molecules in a chain reaction, perhaps up to 100,000 ozone molecules. The summary of their paper, published in 1974, was that the Earth's ozone layer was in danger immediately, even if we ban all use of chlorofluorocarbons. It would take up to a century for chlorofluorocarbons to naturally decompose in the atmosphere. This sparked worry among scientists, and two years later, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences published a report agreeing with Rowland and Molina. American governmental agencies began considering a ban on chlorofluorocarbons, and, as we've seen before, in General Motors of the 1920s through 1960s, Japanese industries of the 1950s and 1960s, the chemical firms manufacturing and using freons dissembled, gaslit, and disputed the reports. There were no clear alternative refrigerants at the time. Aerosol sprays using freons as carrier gases are so darn convenient. Part of the scientific problem is the evanescent nature of the reactants and products in the stratosphere and creating laboratory conditions to mimic them. Even using satellites to monitor ozone was problematic back then, given the primitive electronics and optics on board. The first country to ban chlorofluorocarbons was Sweden 
in January 1978. The USA restricted non-essential uses of chlorofluorocarbons by December of that year. By 1980, the entire European economic community limited CFC usage and production. But even so, usage of chlorofluorocarbons globally continued and rebounded to 1970s production. Things seemed dire, but more on the story will wait until the 1980s. Another 1970s environmental chemical issue was lead. Now, we already heard about tetraethyl lead in gasoline, and it was finally banned in 1975 for all new cars in the USA. But lead was and is an issue to this day in other aspects of the environment. In today's episode, we shall refer to lead compounds used in paint. Lead compounds since ancient times have been known and used for their bright colors. Lead chromate, PbCrO4, is also known as chrome yellow and has been widely used for the yellow stripes down roads because it is a stable bright color. Lead 2,4-oxide, PbO3, known as red lead, is a well-known anti-rust compound as well. Finally, White lead, which is lead carbonate, PbCO3, is a good stark white pigment, often called flake white or Kremnitz white in the art world, and is certainly known since at least ancient Roman times. Tradition breeds familiarity even when the hazards are known. All that said, lead was also suspected and known to be a health hazard since Roman days too. In 1886, Laws in Germany banned women and children from working in lead paint factories. By 1904, the Sherwin-Williams Paint Company published an article on lead-based paint hazards. So, it's a long-time problem. And yet, lead paints have advantages, including faster drying, better durability, moisture resistance against corrosion, let alone their highly opaque pigments. One of the first areas to remove lead paint from sales in the USA was New York City in 1960. Specifically, no high levels of lead were allowed in residential, indoor uses, schools, and daycares. A decade later, in the 1970s, the entire state of New York banned lead paints completely. The USA took a further step in 1971 banning the use of lead-based paint in all public housing. This still allowed private usage of lead paint, though. Not until 1978 did the USA's Consumer Product Safety Commission ban any lead paint containing lead at amounts larger than 600 parts per million. There are further regulations surrounding lead-based paints and their handling that can get pretty detailed. We see, though, that Europe sometimes is more advanced than the USA. We have the German laws of 1886, and then France banned indoor and outdoor building paint in 1909. It did take till 1992 for the United Kingdom to ban lead paints, and 2003 for them to be prohibited throughout the European Union. Other countries often were also slow on the uptake. Philippines banned lead paint in 2013, 
and India prohibited it in 2016. Canada began reducing lead paints in 1976. The real problem is not the walls with paint themselves, but any time there is a failure of the paint or rubbing the paint off the walls. What I mean is, if you rub against the paint, small amounts may come off onto you. If the paint cracks and flakes off, there are paint particles on the floor and small children can pick them up and eat them. The yellow chromate road lines can gradually erode away and leave environmental lead hazards where they wash off roads into the surrounding earth. For our final environmental tragedy of this episode, let's look at Love Canal, about six kilometers south of the Niagara River in the city of Niagara Falls in upstate New York. It's an area of 0.28 square kilometers with 800 houses right near the canal as well. Originally planned by railroad magnate William Love as a residential community in 1890 with a canal, the economic panic of 1893 ended the project, leaving only 1.6 kilometers of canal dug out. During the 1910s, it became a popular swimming hole and then turned into a municipal dump by the 1920s. The Hooker Chemical Company used the site, however, from 1942 to 1953 as a 6.5-hectare chemical waste dump, eventually holding nearly 20,000 tons of all sorts of waste in 210-liter drums, which included a variety of solvents, dyes, and organic compounds, such as halogenated compounds and dioxin. Hooker then covered the dump with clay and sold the area to the Niagara County School Board. Hooker included a limitation clause in the property deed to attempt to extract themselves from liability. By 1976 to 1978, newspaper reports and local health surveys revealed a variety of illnesses residents had migraine headaches, asthma, epilepsy, nephrosis, miscarriages, and even birth defects. It turns out that the water table rose at that time from a snowy winter in 1977, and the toxic brew underground was beginning to drain onto people's properties, cellars, and even the local primary school playground. The local activists couldn't get the New York State officials to do much, partially because the officials were sexist against housewives. Finally, the American president, Jimmy Carter, declared the Love Canal area a state of emergency and evacuated 239 families. But 700 families remained despite evidence of the brew in their homes, and activists pushed the president to create a second state of emergency in 1981 and remove the rest of the inhabitants. The moral of the Love Canal story is that the dump became the public symbol for all these sorts of plastered-over environmental dumps as disasters waiting to happen. It further cemented in the public's mind the equation that chemical equals toxic, replacing the positive, progressive view of the chemical industry in the first half of the 20th century. The Love Canal emergency also bolstered a fledgling movement for environmental justice.
The Environmental Protection Agency's Superfund program, founded in 1980 and officially called Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act, was also an outgrowth of the Love Canal disaster. In our next episode, we review some of the chemical inventions beyond rocket fuels that NASA had a hand in during the heady years of the space race. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. 